You either think I know them, <laughs> or you think of someone like them. <laughs> and uh, I hope it's no one, no relative of someone here this morning. Now, Steve, Steve worked it all out. He thinks it's glory in a, in a few years' time. <laughs> But it had a little tale that went with it, and it was called True Love. And uh, if we can have the next slide, we'll just uh, read it out. This 80-year-old woman was arrested for shoplifting. When she went before the judge, she asked her, what did you steal? She replied, a can of peaches. The judge then asked her why she had stolen a can of peaches, and she replied that she was hungry. Fair deal. The judge then asked her how many peaches were in the can, and she replied, six. And the judge then said, then I will give you six days in jail. Before the judge could actually pronounce the punishment, the woman's husband spoke up and asked the judge if he could say something. And the judge said, what is it? The husband said, she also stole a can of peas. <laughs> you know, I like care about you. No. Who would have confidence in a husband like that? Eh? Who would have confidence in a husband like that? Okay. Just show us a picture one more. I certainly just don't remember this dear couple. There we go. There they are. Okay, you turn it off now. That's fine. Don't put the arrow up her nose because it might do something awful. Well, from living life Jesus' way by his spirit, on his mission, for his glory, we thought that we would go to the, the Old Testament and look at something that would actually charge us with some um, sense of purpose about a church and to give us uh, a renewed sense of where we were going in that statement, living life Jesus way on his mission, for, by his spirit, on his mission for his glory. And um, we thought about going to Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament and we've been looking over recent weeks um, uh, about Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra, who delighted in the law and the word of God. Not only that, he delighted so much that people were drawn to him and what he said by his delight in the word of God. Dwelling in God's word and reading it and letting it be part of us makes men of God. And um, those who drew near to God, those who drew near to God, God saw them as people that he could use in his service and in his purpose. And I think we've all agreed over the weeks that these two men, well, where the man was, right? We sort of agreed that these were two very unique men in the Old Testament, outstanding in, in what they did. God. So much so that um, Nehemiah said to God, remember me. Several, about two or three times he said it. Now God, remember me for what I've done for you, for your people, and for your name. Remember what I've done. Is that pride? No, it's a sense of enjoyment and a sense of purpose burning in his spirit. This is to be remembered. This is not to be forgotten. This is unique in history, very unique in history. Last week, Steve was reminding us that we don't really have to always emulate men who are out and women who are out in the front as icons, really, of the big push. We can be used by God where we are, in whatever situation, but God sees those who draw near to him. God sees those who dwell in his word. And they're the people that will move on. They're the people that will move on. Both these men, Ezra and Nehemiah, were both like that. But I sense something about Nehemiah that's tremendously important in his life, and that he was a man who had confidence in his God. He was a man who had confidence in his God. Now, I'm a person who needs confidence in God. I don't find it easy. You know you get something happen to you, something goes wrong, and almost immediately your confidence is knocked. But here's a man, despite being in an alien situation, 
out of his people, serving a foreign king, if you like. And he's a man who, we're not told this, but a man who's delighting in his God. And because of that, he showed or demonstrated tremendous confidence in the way that he reacted. You only have to look at his prayer and different things like that. Not like this man who was just willing to dob on his wife. Not a man, husband here, it's just a little story. But um, there you go. Now I just want us to turn to Nehemiah 1 and um, read Nehemiah's prayer for a start. We are never told exactly that Nehemiah had confidence in God, but we see it. We see it. And in the moment we look at some things which actually remind us of that. Nehemiah 1, I'll start from verse 4. When I heard these things, that's the plight and the demise of his people, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins, we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction. He's talking to God here. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But, if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place, the place, the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They're your servants and your people, whom you've redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand, O Lord, Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. And that's what happened. God did give him success in the presence of King Artaxerxes in those days to do what he felt in his heart. His heart was drawing him and calling him to do. So, we're looking at the events of history some 3,000 years ago, or getting on for nearly 3,000 years ago, and why should we be here in 2009, coming up 2010, want to know what's going on back there almost 3,000 years ago? Because we believe that uh, there are similarities. God's unchanging. God's unchanging. And the phrase has come up quite often and recently, God's footprint in history. God's footprint in history. And I just want to go back to that for a minute and and just see where we are. And uh, we're here, the church, and I think all of us at times need to have confidence of our confidence to be renewed in God because that makes a difference. So very often our confidence is knocked or shattered so very often we become apathetic. Not totally apathetic, but sometimes we become apathetic about certain areas that go on in the church so that we're not fully behind the leadership. That's important. Nehemiah, with his confidence in God, was able to draw people after him till you get to the point that the people have come together And it says, they cried out as one man. Will you read the Bible to us? 
Will you let us know what God's saying? Will you let us know what God has on his heart? We just want to hear it or to be refreshed in what God had earlier said. And they came together, in Nehemiah it says, they came to, people came together as one man. They came together as one man. Sometimes when our confidence is knocked, we get isolated from the church and the purpose of the church sometimes because we say, oh, I can't run with that and I just want to do my own thing here. Okay, fair enough. People do do their only things. And I remember Fred saying years ago, people do what they believe they want to do. But sometimes there's a more important issue here, a greater purpose. That is, we should come in behind our leader and we should come as one man in the purposes of God. This was largely due to Nehemiah's confidence in God because he had done so much and put it in such a way that the people couldn't help doing what they did. They couldn't help doing what they did. God's footprint in history has come to the forefront of our understanding these past weeks. And we're here now as the church universal. And we have an anchor in the past. And we also have a grappling iron to throw into the future so that we can hook on. And so our anchor goes back to the beginning, to creation. In the beginning, that's what the church does. It goes back and anchors into the history, God's footprint in history. Anchoring in creation, anchoring in Abraham, anchoring in Moses, anchoring in the Jewish nation, if you like, and the way God dealt with them. Throwing our anchor back, that's what we need to do. That's what we're doing now. We as a church here are just throwing an anchor back to get a hold on what God did then and how he did it. But... We've got this wonderful hope too that we can throw a grappling iron and hook onto God's future truth and pull ourselves as we make this way up and, and, and reach the summit of the mountain when Jesus comes and God brings about his purposes. It's a wonderful place to be in. It's an exciting place to be in. But sometimes we throw the rope off the anchor and the rope off the grappling iron and say, well, I think I'll just do my own thing for a time. Well, we're all giving to Kenya, but I don't really believe in that cause, so I just withhold my money. I, I, I've got a better cause. In a sense, that's not apathy, but sometimes it's a little bit of apathy, which is saying, I'm not going to run with the church. Sometimes the church decides to meet themselves and say, well, I don't believe in cells. I believe in something else. I, 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 just, I won't have part of that. But the people came in behind their leader, Nehemiah. They came as one man. And Nehemiah was able to draw these people after him because he was God's man and because he had confidence in God's man. Let's just see a little bit of this confidence in a moment as we look at the prayer. But I've used this illustration before. The illustration of the railway system that we have. These railway tracks have been laid now for several hundred years throughout our country. And they've gone from place to place. And so the foundation for transport has been laid for the railway system and has given a network to get to almost anywhere in this country. And even now we knew it, they're laying new tracks. But these tracks have been laid for a hundred years. Then in about 1962, along came the electrician and he put down a live rail that ran alongside the existing rails and gave power to the new trains that were going to run on the rails. And that's a little bit what likes happening here. The rails are sort of God's footprint in history. And the live rail is like the coming of the Holy Spirit when God has enabled his church to go on those tracks and to run from place to place with a new sense of power and purpose, faster, easier, cleaner. But that's a bit like what we're doing this morning. We're going back into history, see how the tracks have been laid, where they've been laid, but also seeing it was a time when they said, 
time for a new day. And they put the live rail along the old tracks, and the new trains ran with power. And we as believers run with power from on high, when as the church we go forward with the power of the Holy Spirit. So Nehemiah, he knows God, he knows it's God's world. We knows that he's dealing with God's people. He knows God's purpose. He knows his timing. But he also knows that God has an unfailing purpose to fulfill throughout the earth so that there is no conflict between the throne of heaven and the events and activities on earth. Jesus prayed that. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he prayed. He was seeing a day when there would be no conflict between heaven and earth, but he would see heaven's throne on earth. I wonder what they that would be. But God's given that sort of idea to the church. He said, come on, come on, let's have heaven on earth. And so the kingdom of God is now and not yet, and so it's breaking in. But sometimes our apathy, sometimes our lack of confidence in God prevents us from riding that railway track, if you like. We say, oh, well, the church is getting few in numbers, and all the news I hear about the church on TV, which in actual fact is negative, that's true, the church is not what it used to be, it's falling apart, not so many people attending church, but it's not all the truth. It's only half of the truth. And so it's easy for us to get negative and lose our confidence in where we are and where we're going. And despite all amount of opposition, Nehemiah demonstrates his confidence in God. And we have to see that. We see this in his prayer. But this was a demonstration of confidence in God's sovereignty that actually God was in control. Now, it's easy in our day to lose this sense of understanding God's sovereignty with global warming and stuff like that. You could say it like this. It's just going back to what it was earlier. People say, oh, the floods and that, but God can hold just as much water in the sky as he can on the earth. In actual fact, he could take all the water off the earth and hold it in the sky. We don't know. I mean, I'm just surmising. But God is big and powerful enough to do what he wants to do. Having confidence in God. He was confident in God's sovereignty. Now, this is demonstrated in his prayer because he, he comes to God. And it's a place where people don't go today. We can go to all the counsellors there are and all to all the colleges we like, but really the most important place for everybody to go is, is to God. Let's remember the sovereignty of God. But that also applies to us individually. Is coming to God, bringing our lives to him, and involving God in all that we do. Okay, we're saying this morning, God's part of the small things. I mean, Nehemiah could have gone to other places, but he goes to God because he knows the sovereignty of God. Even though this was a terrible situation, the exiled Jewish people, their lives, their businesses, their health was all affected because they'd been scattered and exiled. And the nation was in demise. But Nehemiah doesn't look at that. He looks at God's sovereignty in this matter to do it. And the sovereignty is backed up by the things he comes to God with. When he heard this distressing news, he knew it was right. Sometimes we, we get distressing news and we say, oh, it can't happen to me. He can't do that. We look at the people of Israel and say, this is such a great nation, scattered and torn apart. And shattered. He says, it, it can't be right. No, Nehemiah knew it was right because it's what God said. So he knew the sovereignty of God in this. He knew that disobedience to God 
would lead to the demise of the people. And sometimes we need to see the sovereignty of God in things which don't always seem to be right. The New Testament persecuted church was shattered that it might be scattered. Was that negative or was that positive? Well, it was negative in a way, but God used that to plant new churches so that there were new strategic points for people to move out with the gospel. The church was shattered that it might be scattered. Peter writes to the scattered tribes. He writes to the scattered tribes and he puts them in mind of their suffering and to let them know that really what's happened to them, their faith, is going to be tried. But really the trying of their faith would be like gold to them. And so in all, God was sovereign. He doesn't say to turn to God and say, oh, look at this horrible mess, or what are we going to do about it now? No, he knew it was right because God had said it, because God had said nearly a thousand, about a thousand years earlier, well, that's what it was. If you give up my ways, if you go your own way, you'll be scattered. You'll be shattered and scattered as a nation. But God said it, and that's, that's how it worked out. Because the word people, and Nehemiah recognised that, that really what God had said had actually happened. But it wasn't the only thing God said. What else did God say? Then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place, bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So Nehemiah knew how fundamental this temple with its rebuilt walls was. As a, as a picture, as a sign of God's glory present amongst his people. So not only did Nehemiah know that it was right that they were scattered, but he also knew the grace of God. Confident that God is a reward of those who diligently seek him, but that he does not reward us according to our sins. And Nicky Gumbel was talking on the radio, I think it was Friday, and he was talking about people saying, you know, oh, well, um, God's punishing these nations, you know, where all these disasters are, uh, and, he, and, he's, and he's punishing them because of their sins. Now, he said that doesn't really make, make good, doesn't make sense in the end, because if we was all punished according to our sins, none of us would be alive, really, or we wouldn't even be able to live. But Nehemiah knew it was right that they had been scattered. He knew God had foretold that. He knew it was right too that God would say, well, if my people will humble them and pray, if they will come together, then I will heal them. That's the grace of God. Now in that environment, I think that's amazing. Because living under that system of law... You, you get to live in fear you, of putting a foot wrong, if you like. You get to live in that state, you know, and say, well, what else is God going to do to me? That's a wrong place to be. What else can happen to me? I've lost my business. My health is poor. What else can happen? Nothing else can happen. It's all happened to me. But it says... God is a God of grace. <coughs> that was very fundamental, very fundamental to drawing these people back to God. And it's the same for us today. Sometimes we get the wrong picture of God, but God is saying to us this today, as a sense to give us confidence in him, God is a rewarder of those <coughs> who diligently seek him. Hallelujah. That gives me confidence. <coughs> and so as Nehemiah moves in on God, God moves in on him. Those that draw near to God, God will draw near to those who draw near to him. It's an amazing principle, isn't it? 
you know. We can get the heart of God if we draw near to him with our heart. We'll get the mind of God if we draw near to him with our mind. We'll get the hand of God, the hand of help. Nehemiah proved that if we draw near with our hands. What can these hands do? What can my heart do? What can my mind do? What can my eyes do? What can I do? And Steve was saying last week, we can do anything. It doesn't matter who we are. Midwives, social carers, all sorts of people in society, chosen and blessed by God. And to have confidence in the grace of God when all seems to be going downhill is an amazing place to be. So what gives us confidence? Confidence in the grace of God. He's for you. He's for me. I was talking to a man yesterday, and I said, God's for you. He loves you so much. Don't keep harping back on your sin. God's, Jesus has dealt with it. You know, God's grace is so wonderful. He wants you to draw near to him. He wants you to love him. He wants you to talk to him. And so Nehemiah cries out to God. He said, incline your ear towards your servant. Listen to me, God. Listen to me. I'm coming to you. I'm speaking to you. This is your name. These are your people. This is the place you've decided to put your name. Listen to me. Maybe not quite as strong as that. (laughs) But when you're trying to make the point, sometimes our praying is in apathy. When really it's not the biblical place that believers should be in. They need them to be in a place of confidence. What else does he say? Open your eyes and look at me. And see what I... Look at me, God. See what I'm about. This is important. These are your people. You said that you would gather them back again. And that's what I'm about. Open your eyes and look what I'm doing. I think we find a sense of confidence in that. Something my confidence in praying needs to come more to what God wants. Lord, we humbly come before you in your holy presence. Now, I'm not knocking anybody and I don't want to mock anybody. But I think confidence in praying will actually draw into God's purposes. To know that it's what God does what God wants. His church to be built and to be grown and to grow. Does he want does, does that what he is that what he wants? Does he want to be people to be saved, to be born again of his spirit? Does he want people to be set free? Does he want people to be healed? It's endless what God wants. He's about restoration. He's about renewal. And that's what this is about. These two chapters of Israel and Nehemiah. Renewal and restoration. Bringing people to back to, be, to come where they need to be. And so, as Nehemiah comes with a sense of sovereignty of God in all this, he comes with, with confidence. He comes with confidence. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Delight in revering your name. Is that our delight, to honour God? I think we honour God in our worship this morning. And I find great delight in that. Nehemiah found great delight in that. Not only that, but Nehemiah comes to God as a sense of bringing his sin to God. I confess my own sin, and I confess the sin of my father's. Now I think that's another point there, because I'm not quite sure how Nehemiah was in his sacrificial relationship with God. 
he was in an alien environment. I'm not sure how he could have got up with that, but he should be a man who was offering sacrifices. One of the Bible commentators uh, mentions that um, we don't know where Nehemiah came from, but it could be that he was a priest, because it's mentioned in Maccabees, you know, whatever. How well we take that. But it's possible he could be. But I'm not sure if he actually himself was fulfilling all that the law required at that stage where he was, or could do it in the situation that he was in. And yet here he is, to pleading to God about his sin. To take a big jump in all of this, where we are now, we don't do the sacrifices anymore. Why? Because there was a greater purpose to the sacrifices. A greater purpose to the sacrifices. And Jesus is our sacrifice. One sacrifice has been made in the end of the age to put away sin. And that's what he's done. Put it away completely. And that should give us tremendous confidence as we draw near to God. But he knew his God. They who know their God shall be strong and do great exploits. They that know their God shall be strong and do great exploits. Knowing his God, he could see in the context of where he was that God was also a God of grace as well as truth. A God of truth and grace. A God who Nehemiah mentioned in his prayer who keeps covenant love. The very fact that Jesus came and gave his life for us, for the whole world, is God keeping his covenant love. God keeping his covenant love. So sometimes we get the wrong idea, the wrong picture about God. We see him in a light which is not meant to be. But I just want to say this morning, because others may hear this on CD, that Jesus loves each one of us so much that he was willing to die for us on the cross and give his own life that we might be forgiven. That is not the law of God, that's the grace of God. The grace of God that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. We might become rich. So I think Nehemiah saw another side to God that maybe a lot of other people didn't see, that he was a God of grace. But he was drawing on a thousand-year-old truth to give him hope for the future. We as the church draw on 2,000-year-old truth, if you like, or nearly 2,000-year truth. Well, it's over 2,000 now, now, isn't it? I've been saying that now for about 40 years. I forget the time's gone by. (laughs) As time goes by, yeah. Um, So, yeah. So we're drawing on truth, 2,000 or so years old. But you see, what it was about was like this. And it was mentioned to the early Christians time and time and time again. Built upon, built upon the apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So the wonderful connection of history here, the footprints of history, connects immediately into the church. And there's no distinction. And Nehemiah mentions here, people who delight in revering your name, and he mentioned earlier about that being a place for God's name. And the church is the place for God's name. We don't say this with a sense, we do say it with a sense of pride, but not the wrong sort of pride. We say the church is for Jesus, it's for his glory, for his fame, and for what he's doing for us now and for the whole whole future generation of people that may come on behind us. God is working out his purposes in the earth. Now, a contemporary prophet of Nehemiah, almost contemporary, was Malachi. And Nehemiah was the last historical book that was written in the Old Testament. You say, well, 
Why is it so early on in the Bible? We don't know, but the Bible's not in chronological order. But Nehemiah was the last historical book that was written, and Malachi was the last prophetical book that was written in the Old Testament. And Malachi is a contemporary of Nehemiah. And in Malachi 3, See, I will send my messenger, this is John the Baptist, who will prepare the way before me. These are prophetic words. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Now, if Malachi being a prophet was a contemporary of Nehemiah, I can't say for sure that they would discuss this face to face. But what I can say is the concept of expectancy was circulating amongst the people of God. Then suddenly the Lord will come to his temple. (laughs) Hallelujah. That wall and that temple had to be intact for Jesus to come to it. In order that Jesus might say, this place is going to be destroyed. One stone's not going to be left upon another. But it's all part of history, isn't it? That temple had to be in place. The wall and the temple were restored worship in the sense of lining up the walls with the word of God, putting this, the sense of order about that city and its place, putting it in order so that the Lord would come to his temple. And sometimes, you know, we say, well, why have we got to do this, you know? And there's some things we're doing here today that may not be fully relevant for future generations. You say, well, why did I? And some people say, I've done that for years. Why has it got to change? But it's not about you. And it's not about me. It's about what God's doing. It's about what he's doing. And... There may be a time when what you do is not longer required and someone takes your place. Someone will take my place. Someone will take John's place. But it's what God wants. It's his purpose of moving forward. His purpose of moving forward. But the expectancy that the Lord, the Messiah, was coming to his temple was beginning to gain momentum amongst the people. And so Nehemiah wasn't drawing these people just to get them together. No, they needed to be, they were being drawn together to know what God was going to do. And we're drawn together as a church to know what God's going to do in the future. It's not about now. It's about the future. About the future glory of Jesus. And this all stemmed from Nehemiah's confidence in God, that comfort God He was confident that what God was doing and what he was able to do and what he wanted to do would happen. And so he prayed into it. And he worked into it. And I think we all need that challenge, don't we? Just to work in and to hand in and to move in on what God's doing. Doing what we can where we can. To seeing that Jesus' name is glorified. Speaking up for him. Walking down the street, letting people know we're going to church. Carrying our Bibles. And all the little things that say, we love him. And we're just going to meet with God's people because God's about a great work. And that's what Nehemiah said to his people. God is about a great work. And it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed one little bit. When Nehemiah gets going and sorts all these things out, he meets some opposition. So in verse 20 of chapter 2, he said, I answered them, that's Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab. You notice how that little group's growing? It was two of them earlier on, now it's three of them. And when you get further on in the book, there's a bigger group of them uh, drawing together to give opposition. And then it changes, as Steve mentioned to us a little while ago, one man in the house of God with all his, with all his rubbish in there with him. And Nehemiah scandals him out of the temple. That you have no place here, mate. Out you go. Sometimes discipline is needed about church things. And we don't like it. We think it's just a negative word. We think, I'm quite comfortable where I am. 
We know Nehemiah was a leader. That's a general impression I get of the man. God raised him up to be a leader. And our churches need leaders who demonstrate sometimes discipline. Well, give us a word and say, well, that's not quite helpful. And we don't like it sometimes. People have said it to me in the past. You don't like it. I was going to speak on the frustrations of a leadership of a leader this morning, and well, I think God's spent me off of it somehow. But sometimes John comes to me and says, "Oh, I don't know. If only, oh, you know, and I know his heart, you know." And a leader's are frustrations, but this book, this reading Nehemiah tells us, let's come in behind our leader. Coming in behind our leader is actually coming in behind Jesus. There are good leaders and there are bad leaders. That's for God to sort out, not for us to sort out. But let's come in behind our leader because God's put John there for that specific reason, for this specific time to call us behind him. I just want to change tack a bit because I want to get us a little bit of the New Testament truth before we go. <coughs> so as Nehemiah owned up to failure and confession and confronting the opposition, we see his confidence in God remaining despite what? Prayer was a big part of that, praying about the situation. That's a reminder for us to do this. But if you turn in your Bibles to, and this is mainly just reading a few scriptures, Romans 8. This is heading up more than conquerors. It's a little title over the passage in my Bible. Sort of ties the things together. What then shall we say in response to this? God is... For us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That grounds the very fact of demonstrating to the world, which says God is for us. God, who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Sometimes we charge ourselves when God hasn't charged us. The man I was speaking to yesterday, he's still charging himself with his sin. But the grace of God takes us into the place. No charge. No charge. It is God who justifies, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sakes we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No... In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced. Are you convinced? Or is there that doubt? Be convinced this morning, brother and sister. Be convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nehemiah said, the God who keeps covenant love. God who keeps covenant love. You have to have confidence in God to demand that from God who keeps covenant love. Hebrews 3 verse 12. In the context of this book, we see a people who prone to wander. 
And if our confidence wanes and we begin to get apathetic, we're wandering too. So a sense of renewed confidence in God will renew our attitude and free us from apathy. Hebrews 3 verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. See the anchor in the past? Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. Amen. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And if we're his house, if we hold to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So holding on to our confidence in God despite what? Just down to verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. How is your confidence first in Jesus? Well, is it really assured? Because sometimes it wanes a bit from the time we first believe. Sometimes that's Satan's work. Sometimes it's God saying, put your money where your mouth is. You said you believe in God. I'll just give you a chance to prove that. See where your faith really is and your trust really is. And that will depend on our confidence in him. The last verse in chapter 4 and verse 14. Hebrews, that is. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That confidence there is sort of a funny word, but exploded a little bit means with freedom. Coming to the God with freedom. It also means to come to God with a sense of excitement. <laughs> I've never approached God being excited before. I bet Nehemiah did when he saw what was happening. I said, that, does that, you know, in his spirit was moving upwards in excitement. <coughs> Sometimes our praying can be like excited about what God can do and what he can do. That's freedom, excitement, with no fear. There's another part of that word, with no fear. What a wonderful God we have. And Jesus has made it all possible. I think I just need an injection of confidence each day, as we all do. What Nehemiah did for God was seen as his, as he demonstrated that confidence in the one who is largely distant from the people. Let not God be distant, but let him be close. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Father. Lord, you, you look at us, you know us, and you know it's easy to get afraid, it's easy to lack confidence, and a bit apathetic sometimes if we don't 
feel we're right at the heart of things which are going on. But I just pray, Lord, that you just call in the one and twos from the fringes of what's happening in the church and draw them right into the middle, I pray. For those two, Father, who maybe think, that's maybe even me, Lord, who think they're right at the forefront and in the middle, and yet maybe they're a little further away than what they think they are. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us about the confidence that we can have in you. But I pray, Lord, just build your church with power in this town, we pray. We want to be a part of that, Lord. Give the leaders and give the churches in this account a sense of renewed confidence in what you want to do in this town, we pray. Let's pray for the passion for life being exposed at the moment. Father, we pray. For any new things you may do in the new year, give us a sense of confidence, Lord. Anything that we may do for you at Christmas, in Alpha, a renewed sense of confidence, Father, about what you want to do. Let us tug at your coat, Lord. Let us knock on your door. Let us argue with you, Lord, about things you've said. Because if you said it, it must be right. Thank you for your truth, Lord. Thank you for what it can do for us. And as we pray as a church, Lord, we just pray into your promises. Don't worry about anything, Jesus said. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, they said. Your faith will be tested and tried. You may even suffer. But in the end it's gold. Gold tried with fire. So help us, Lord, whatever we face, we have a renewed sense of confidence that all will be well. Because of Jesus and because of his glory we pray. Amen.